This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. This is Sanjay Kumar, your host for the New Books Network channel on literary studies. I'm delighted to be back to introduce a wonderful book by Pallavi Narayan titled Pamuk's Istanbul, The Self and the City. On behalf of all NBN listeners, let me welcome you to the New Book Network channel and to the literally literary studies channel of NBN. Welcome, Pallavi. Thank you so much, Sanjay. To start with, my first question would be, maybe you can tell us and the listeners, how did you come about to write this book? Well, um, I started this book as part of my doctoral studies at the Indian Institute of Technology. Um, so I started working on, you know, Pamuk because I had heard him speak in 2004 at this literature festival in in Delhi. Um, and I started reading him more seriously in 2011 when I was asked to choose what I would write on. Um, and I chose Pamuk precisely because he straddles uh, this, you know, in-between space, in-between the East and the West. And I thought that, you know, that would be a really uh, a different take by a South Asian a female scholar to write, about, um, to write about a male, partly Asian, partly European writer. Um, and also because there is a certain lack of, lack of female agency in his books, which I thought it was important for someone like me to to highlight. Now, that is not to say that I do not enjoy his work. I hugely enjoy it. Um, I have been always excited to to um, write about cities and cities in fiction. Uh, I also wanted to uh, look at marginalized communities. That was the original intent behind working on this uh, on this subject. Um, and I also wanted to uh, to 
to see how um, I could bring in contemporary Indian realities in conversation with contemporary Turkish realities because I was quite interested and still am in uh, in countries which have never been colonized but which show a kind of history of the same. So Turkey has never been colonized while India has and yet the histories of both have been pretty similar in certain respects. While, of course, Turkey is um, far more cosmopolitan or has historically been, um, India also shows a contemporary urban aspiration towards being like the West, which is what Pamuk focuses on in his work. Also, a number of Pamuk's peers focus on the same. Uh, and I, I wanted to work on him because he is, um, he is the most translated Turkish writer. He, his work is available in multiple languages globally. Um, and, uh, and he also, in his novels, has focused upon certain key themes, which I think carry forward into his, his work today. So, uh, which has also shifted over the past few years. So, yeah, this is where it came about. Thank you. That's a fascinating journey into the book. Um, One of the things that I think struck me was the structure of the book. And I thought you have a very interesting opening chapter titled Imagining Pamuk's Istanbul, which I thought kind of lays the ground for what the book is all about. But maybe I'll ask you to perhaps unpack for our listeners and the prospective readers of your book, why the title Imagining Pakmuk's Istanbul? That's a really great question, Sanjay. Uh, And I don't think anybody has ever asked me that before. Um, In all these, you know, multiple talks I have given on this book, um, uh, this has never actually come about. So I um, I chose to title the opening chapter thus because I um, because after all Orhan Pamuk has imagined different Istanbuls into all of his novels and each novel while it also uh, as I had me- mentioned before um, while each novel focuses on some key themes um, each is also based in different in different times. Uh, so you have, my name is Red, for example, which is based in the 16th century, while you have his museum book, which is based in um, a decade um, of the 1980s, um, which is really quite different and quite exciting. Um, so there are these, you know, different ways of imagining the city and in this opening chapter I've also brought him into conversation with several other writers um, and in fact in my, in my conclusion I've also focused on his uh, on his similarities with Murakami for example or Paul Oster uh, which I felt was uh, you know uh, quite important um, in terms of placing him on the global literary map uh, so that was one of the reasons. The other reason is that uh, I myself 
while reading each novel, I have imagined this will into existence in different ways. Um, and so as a person, as, as a, a scholar, uh, having focused so deliberately on this city um, for the past, uh, you know, for, for yeah, close to a decade, I think, and, you know, reading about it, visiting it, um, reading around it, visiting countries around Turkey as well, and not just Turkey. Um, I think I have, uh, I have gained a deeper understanding, which, which has resulted in a kind of, um, a kind of literary mapping of my own as well, uh, and a kind of refashioning of the city again and again in my head. Um, and this is what I wanted to, you know, um, bring to readers as well. I want each reader to not only see uh, the visuals that Tamuk's novels <laughs> throw up for us, but also how they actually interpret these visuals. Because each of us comes from a different context and background. So as a scholar of the Global South, for example, I have a very different view of what Istanbul could be for me, what it is for me, and what it actually is. And uh, if I am a reader coming from, say, Latin America, because I have friends over there who, who also read Pamuk, they actually see him very, very differently. Their perspective is very colored by colonial readings, while mine are colored mostly by post-colonial readings, because that has been a historical, uh, you know, um, variation, so to say. Uh, and also in scholars coming from North America or from Europe, it would be a very different experience again, because they are coming with, you know, uh, different interpretations of what uh, the city ha has meant, what it actually means today, and where its future is going. So, so yeah, these are the readings I wish to bring forth through, through this uh, title. Thank you, Pallavi. As a diehard Pamuk fan, I must say that uh, reading the book reminded me of the structure of his own works. So maybe I would probably say it would be great for the listeners and the readers of your book to know how you have structured this book, because the chaptering of the books might give us a sense of how you have organized the contents. So maybe if you could give us a brief overview of how the book, the project of what you want to undertake in the book is organized across the chapters of the book. Sure. Um, the book is organized into seven chapters, including the introduction. Um, and I have focused on, on different aspects in each chapter, which of course are, are also complementary and segue one, one from the next. So in the opening chapter, which I have just talked about, I have detailed my theoretical underpinnings uh, for this project. And I have made a case for the modernist city as simultaneously containing postmodernist elements and for the postmodernist dream city as training towards a realm beyond. Uh, so I have uh, tried to uh, place Pamuk, um, I think successfully, at uh, the cusp of modernism and postmodernism, 
Um, and then in chapter two, which is titled Situating Istanbul, I have located Pamuk within Turkey's specific geographical and historical context while emphasizing the cultural aspects. Um, and then moving on uh, into chapter three, Pamuk's fictional universe, um, this is my favorite chapter, actually, because it actually came about uh, towards the culmination of this project. Um, I was uh, struggling with what kind of theoretical contribution to make through this work. And I remember I was sitting on the floor of my bedroom, uh, you know, thinking very deeply about this subject. And my supervisor had mailed me saying, do you really want to finish this PhD or not? Um and uh, I got very panic-stricken, and I started reading um, all kinds of theory at that point in time. And it was then that I discovered uh, this, you know, gap in a sense between Foucault, Pakhtin, and Benjamin. Uh, and I wanted to bring them together in this very, uh, very interesting collaboration, so to say, um, in actually theorizing the chapters of this work by following it in terms of Pamuk's museum as well as home, and uh, by extension, the city as a heterotopic space. Uh, so I have worked in proposing the simultaneity and difficulty of a system in producing a heterotopic space uh, and thereby being allopoetic, but the heterotopia then being autopoetic. Um, so then what I really focused on is enabling a rich discussion of doubling and seeing this as a bridge between modernism and postmodernism. And um, I have worked on conceptions of the self and the other. So... Um, in terms of Gautria's Simulacra, which transforms the notion of the self entirely. Um, and then I have tried to reach a, um, a sort of resolution of the various selves of his protagonists. And this is interesting because this is also reflected in his museum, uh, wherein um, different posters and uh, um, uh, literary maps which he has constructed actually refer different protagonists. So while his museum refers to his um, museum books protagonist Kemal, Kemal also encounters other protagonists from his, his novels, particularly the Black Book, for example, Galip there. So I found that a very, uh, uh, you know, a very useful and productive way of viewing um, the randomness and fragmentation of the postmodernist city, um, and also, as you know, a sense of community building in a very odd manner, um, because Pamuk is blending the fictional and the real in so many different ways. That um, and and this is not, and this is not solely in terms of building a museum to represent. A novel, which is essentially fiction, but it's also bringing in elements of the city during that decade, which which makes it real. 
but also referring different characters to each other. Um, anyhow, moving on, in chapter four, which is titled Moving Through the Neighborhood, I have, uh, I have looked at the narratives that surround and constitute the city, um, and Pamuk works within them even as he challenges and displaces them. So here I have uh, looked at uh, the figure of uh, the flanier and also the coffee house and the hotel as, uh, as you know, a kind of, as, as kinds of homes, but also not homes. Um, and then in chapter five, Flanier in the city museum, um, I have focused on how the, the Flanier walks through the city and how he interacts with the museum. Uh, so I'm here examining the overlaps between the museum and the city and how their spaces modify social behavior. Um, and here in these spaces, the flaneur also seeks a meaning, a purpose, um, a discourse as if within a dream. So here I've tried to look at the hallucinatory city, bringing in Freud as well. I've also looked at the deluded planners and I've seen the merging of text and city in Pamuk's museum. Um, I've also uh, brought in the categories of the literary flaneur and the mobile planner, um, you know, which kind of fits Pamuk within this modernizing narrative. Um, and then uh, in chapter six, dreaming objects in the museum of innocence, um, I, I have looked at how the planner returns home from his excursions through the city. So here I have I've examined in great detail the Turkish house, which functions in the city's imaginary and how the home, the repository of familial and cultural history is museumized. Um, I have looked at uh, the theory of things, for example, or thing theory, if you'd rather have it that way. Um, I have also considered uh, the nostalgia for the modern being undercut by the city teetering on the edge of, of postmodernism. So I've looked at displays, exhibitions, uh, museum catalog, um, because Pamuk's museum catalog actually acts as a framework for uh, the artwork within, but it also functions as its, as its own thing. It's also its, its own book. You can actually read it separately from the museum. So even in even in creating a museum catalog, it has a number of fictional elements, a number of realistic elements as well, which lead us through this museum space in its physicality, but can also be read as a kind of imaginary space, which we are, cre are co-creating co along with the author. And finally, in chapter seven, recording the city, I, um, I also combine the fictional and the real writer, uh, who, is, uh, who is within this project of reconstruction and reconstitution that is subverted by its own artificiality. Uh, and I've also looked at multiple traditions 
of city writing here. So here I have brought in several authors into conversation with Pamuk. Um, and if you allow, I can name a few. Um, okay, let me just go to my bibliography and I will just let you know. So let's look at, as I had mentioned earlier, um, Apollo Star, uh, Calvino, uh, Michael Chabon. Um, I, I've also brought in Dostoevsky uh, in his short story, The Double, which actually spoke really well to Pamuk's work. Lawrence Darrell, Alberto Eco, T.S. Eliot even. Um, and then I have brought in other uh, Turkish writers uh, like Kurshat Bashar, Elif Shafak, um, and also writers writing about Istanbul, like Barbara Nadel, Ahmed Umid's crime series. So I've also felt that looking at detective fiction has been quite useful in studying Pamuk because detective fiction naturally involves a certain level of artificiality. Uh, there is this, you know, creation of a detective. There is a creation of a person who is looking through other people's works, other people's notes, which is uh, very well seen in the Black Book. So I will stop here with this very long drawn out response to your question. Please. If you could, if we could move on to the next subject. Thank you, Thank Pallavi. You that was very yeah. helpful. Um, I must tell the listeners that the book is very thoroughly researched. It has an extensive, very exhaustive, comprehensive bibliography, not only of theoretical works which look at theorizing the city and the urban experience, but also looking at literary scholars literary studies, secondary literature, which has looked at the way the city has been represented, not only in Turkish, but also Anglo-American and world literature. I could go on and on, uh, but given the paucity of time, I might focus on a couple of things which I thought are very fascinating for me, and I'll go back to the title of the book again. We call it Pamuk's Istanbul, The Self and the City, where I find four characters one is Pamuk, other is Istanbul, the third is the self, and the fourth is the city. Um, I think each merits a separate book, so it definitely goes to the credit of Pallavi Narayan that she managed to bring all of them together in a book. Hence, it is a heady reading uh, for anybody who is interested in any of them. Having said that, I don't want to dilute the pleasure of reading the book. Uh, and one of the things I must confess to you and to the listeners is that I had the privilege of visiting the museum in Istanbul myself after having read the book. Um, so for me, reading the book brought back good memories of that tactile experience. So I want to spend a little bit of time uh, on the trope of the museum and the trope of the city. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. In one of the sentences in the book, um, you talk about, in page number 33, to be precise, 1.7, reading this book in the introductory chapter, there's a very nice sentence, which if I may read, this chapter focuses on the hallucinatory city and its deluded planners and sees the merging of the city and text in the Museum of Innocence. You mentioned already in this exposition just now about the theoretical strains of it. 
but I'm also keen to see how you find the museum, the physical museum there, also being an important trope in the way in which Pamuk maps the city. So if I may use an extension of the language that you're using, it's museumization of the city, but in some sense for me, it's also novelization of the museum. So I find an interesting link here between the way we read the novel and the way we watch, experience, visit, travel through a museum. So for me, reading the novel, as you claim in Pamuk, is also a way of visiting the novel through the city, which becomes a museum. So I, I really like the way in which you connect the flanier, the museum, the city and the novel. And to put the final point on what I'm trying to say here is, I find this all very well weaved into your description of the city of Istanbul and its historical setting, which you just mentioned earlier, as finding its very interesting manifestation in the home. So we have a new dimension here. For me, the home also becomes, as you, as you argue very well, the museum. So maybe you could throw a little bit more of light for us on how Pamuk's fiction becomes an exemplary case of, if I may extrapolate a theoretical strain from your argument, to read the novel as a museum. Sure. Thanks very much for those compliments as well, Sanjay, um, and for this question. Um, so um, I have always been very interested in museums in general. I have been visiting museums um, since I was very young, in fact. And, I, I, and what most interested me when I first visited museums in Europe in 2012, and I traveled to several countries at the same time visiting several museums, uh, so it was a 21-day trip and I visited 19 museums. That was my, my first trip to Europe um, and I spent most of it inside museum spaces. Now, I visited all kinds of museums. I did not focus only on the famous ones, so to say. I'm always drawn to, I'm always drawn to aspects and spaces and books even and also traveling through um, um, not very well-researched areas, not very well-traveled um, to places, uh, so to say. Um, and I thought that I was interested in the objects on display. In actuality, I was noticing the way that light and shadows were falling. I was noticing the locations of the museums. I was also paying attention to how big certain galleries were, how how small certain rooms were, and what objects were actually seen to each other within those spaces. So, so I realized that I was interested more in spatial theory, while I also was interested in why, why collectors actually you know, collect. Um, and Pamuk, in fact, fulfills both those themes in this museum. Um, so, in a sense, when I found out that that Pamuk was building a museum based on his novel, uh, it was a natural, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, um, it was a natural shift uh, in my work on his uh, his fiction to to not only visit his museum but to bring in all my accumulated knowledge of museum theory of museums, exhibitions, and displays in various parts of the world to bear upon his museum and how 
and the flaneur relates to it. Now, Pamuk himself had visited several small house museums in Europe before setting up this one. And in fact, that's actually where I got the idea of focusing on his museum, not only as a, a museum space formally, but also as the space of the home. After all, in his novel, it is the Keskin's home that is converted into this museum. Now, interestingly, Pamuk had actually conceived the museum space far, far before he had written the novel. So the novel was in fact supposed to be a catalogue to this museum. So if you read the novel closely, you will see that there are lists of you know, various objects and all kinds of everyday objects. Like you have graters, you've got keys, you've got locks, you've got um, earrings, uh, objects of daily use in the house. Um, and there are a lot of... This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Cigarette butts. In fact, one entire wall is actually covered with them. Um, and each cigarette butt ha has a little a note below it stating who had smoked it, when, and where. Um, so some of these cigarette butts have, have also been been created for the museum. So what I found quite fascinating was that you know Pamuk has built a little workshop below the museum in its basement, uh, wherein some of the objects are created. So if he could not find them in you know flea markets, antique dealers, or friends' homes. Uh, he would actually go and create uh, some objects. Um, so I found that a very interesting way of of uh, not only bringing the city to life in the home, in the museum space, but also, in fact, creating the city um, in a fresh perspective. Um, so, yeah, if you have any more questions on this, I'm, I'm willing to answer them. But I hope this fulfills part of what you're asking. Thank you, Pallavi. Indeed, it does. Moving on, um, I know there is more to the museum in the book, but I would probably encourage the listeners to buy the book, borrow the book and read it, um, and also the novel. Just to take a segue now to Pamuk, because you place him very interestingly in multiple contexts. And those of you who are not aware of the Nobel Prize winning writer, both inside and outside Turkey, he has been in the news sometimes controversially too. Uh, one of the things that you 
connect to what you've said so far, which I think is relevant for our discussion now, is his positionality. Um, as somebody who inhabits a space on the outskirts of Europe, as you call it, uh, somebody who has always been, and as you quote in the book, and I know from his other works, he mentions about who spent all his life in one house in the city of Istanbul, in Turkey, dreaming about Europe. There are these beautiful passages that you cite. Um, because I'm positioned myself in Europe for the last 15 years, and I find it fascinating being an Indian, um, how do you find Pamuk's fiction uh, also a fiction about somebody looking at spaces beyond the question of urban-rural, but also as the question of you know, imagining and reimagining Europe? Uh, so for me, this is interesting in 2023 uh, when we read Orhan Pamuk, and I'll have a connected question to you. It's also about translation. Uh, I don't know how much the listeners know about Pallavi, but she has been in the publishing industry. She has drawn on her experience there, and there's a fantastic interview with Maureen Freely. She has attached in the appendix of this book, which makes it even more valuable. So maybe as an answer to this question, you might also like to draw on your own experiences as somebody who has worked in the publishing industry about translations and how working with the translators, if I may say so, has been for me one of another interesting insights of reading your book. Um, yeah, thanks very much for those questions. May I please uh, I request you to let me know what was the first one? So sure. The first one was more in terms of how do you think the positionality of Pamuk being in Turkey, as you call it, as a border between Europe, but not being inside it, influences the other theorizing that you do, especially the trope of the flanier, which is again a European trope. Also, this idea of the museum, which I also find to be very European in nature. But as you say, on the other hand, he's constantly nego negotiating Turkish troubled past, as you mentioned in the book the twist with secularization through Kemal Atatürk, but also in general, all his fiction, most of his fiction does have uh, the historical, political, social landscape of Turkey as a subtext, if I may say so. So what do you think is interesting about reading Pamuk, if you're interested in urban fiction, about this question of Europe and the world? Yeah, thank you very much again for repeating that in a slightly more elaborate manner because it makes it a little clearer for me to also respond to. Um, I find Pamuk to be very, very relevant at this moment, and I find him to be particularly exciting given that you know Turkey is not, in fact, aspiring to be like Europe anymore. Um, I wonder if that changes Pamuk's you know, position himself as a writer. Um, I have met him a couple of times and he has also read this book. So that makes it really very, uh, um, I mean, it's been a great honor to have him read this. Uh, two of his translators have also read this, Erda Goknar and Maureen Freely, both of whom have contributed in seminal ways to this work as well. Um, I find, uh, I find that um, given that Turkey has never been colonized, but it displays, you know, it has displayed a kind of, a kind of contentious history of the same, there has been a certain kind of looking towards the West, this Westward aspiration, 
this uh, this you know rush towards modernization in terms of uh, bringing in the European architects to redesign the city. However, as is typical of uh, once colonized or not really colonized but displaying colonization traces uh, countries, um, and a lot of this is hyphenated. So I hope you can see those hyphens in your minds. Uh, I mean, listeners as well as you, of course, Sanjay. Um, uh, I think it's uh, it's really significant to think of Turkey today as a kind of emerging global power, which is showing a very uh, odd face, which I think Pamuk is trying to, um, which is, I think Pamuk is trying to address in his recent work, which deals with migrants or with migration, uh, which I have not really focused on in my book. Um, but he has actually now turned his focus on marginalized, marginalized communities within Istanbul, communities which are which are building on the city and uh, and actually the urban core is uh, it pushed further and further in terms of you know building shanties in terms of uh, our village brothers you know coming in uh, from from various areas of Turkey, um, I I think it kind of speaks to a more uh, fundamentalist viewpoint, uh, if I may, um, which I think is reflected in general politics, not only in Turkey but also in a few other countries in the world, including India at this point. Um, um, and I mean that in a more literary sense in, you know, here as well, because I don't think I'm qualified to talk on, you know, um, political upheavals at this moment, and I do not wish to actually stray into that territory. Um, I wish to focus particularly on uh, literary, uh, literary representations of the city at this point in time. Um, and I think Pamuk is actually moving towards very transforming kind of city. Not that he has not done that in his works, which I've already studied and brought forward in this book, but in his recent works, in his recent uh, writings, he has focused, his focus seems to have shifted quite deliberately and you know, quite, um, quite massively, in fact, from the upper classes uh, or the middle class to migrants and, uh, you know, that, that actually functions as a kind of trope for, you know, refugee studies and, you know, so on, which are taking the world by storm these days and also creating kinds of hyper-real realities, which I've also talked about in this book in a very different way. Um, so that's, uh, uh, yeah, I think in terms of the outsider, you have made a fair point by, by saying that Pamuk's you know, positionality and location on the outskirts of Europe also uh, kind of exemplifies what I have tried to do in this work, which is also to look at, you know, communities within the cities which seem to be de-peripheralized. In some ways, communities which are always, you know, performing. Uh, and I've also talked about performance um, in terms of 
the self needing to, you know, change itself um, in response to this transforming city. Um, as for translation, um, in fact, I am teaching on this, you know, postgraduate diploma in translation and creative writing at this moment. Uh, so I think this is a really interesting question that you have brought up. Um, the question of translation first came to me when I had, you know, talked to my supervisor about working on Pamuk um, because all of his works have been translated, as I have mentioned earlier, by different translators. I think he's had around five translators so far, if I'm not mistaken. Um, each work is very high quality, of course, but Pamuk also knows English enough to sit with his translators and go over every word as the interview a bit more freely towards the end of this book also states. Um, but since the translations are of such high quality, my university felt it was all right to move ahead uh, with looking at it in terms of a comparative literature framework, perhaps, which I ha have tried to do throughout. But I've also looked at the role of the writer himself throughout this work. And uh, I have discussed, you know, Pamuk's role as a writer. I've also discussed, you know, the various protagonists are also writing throughout these novels. If you look at the Black Book, for instance, Galip is also writing, uh, writing into existence, uh, you know, himself as this new character. Um, he's also taking over somebody, somebody else's uh, character entirely, and he is refashioning himself, which uh, has been, you know, something that I've been, you know, quite fascinated by generally throughout Pamuk's work, and also in terms of, you know, city fiction in general, um, in terms of how the individuals need to refashion themselves out of necessity within cities, um, and also with regard to Pamuk's work on migrants or migrant labor, um, one could also see that happening at the same time. Um, and I think that that is, you know, quite quite relevant today, um, globally, in fact. Uh, so, yes, in terms of translation, having my own publishing experience uh, um, in Singapore, within India, has been, um, has been useful as well. Um, I think sometimes in just reaching out to, you know, Pamuk's translators, not being fearful of doing that, of asking them what were their motivations behind translating his work, how did they come about to translate his work, um, but also trying to see what is the role of the, the translator themselves here, uh, which Maureen has responded to very well in the interview. I don't really want to give away a lot of details of that because I think it's a very valuable part of this book. Um, and yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, it was a long interview. We, you know, spent almost five hours together online, uh, to, you know, figure out what to, what to keep, what to not keep, because it was like this very long conversation, this very long dialogue about translation and about also the creative task of the translator not merely to translate word for word, but to also bring forward to readers in different parts of the world um, how translations in different languages can do that, because every language has its own structure as well. 
And since Pamuk speaks to this multilingual audience, um, I also assume that you know translations which are in other languages uh, may be done quite differently. Uh, so, so yeah, it would. I think a future work, perhaps, of a person, of a scholar who knows maybe three or four languages and would like to read Pamuk in all those languages and perhaps do a comparative analysis of how you know Pamuk's translation has been done in each language. That could be quite useful in this in the field of Pamuk studies in general. Thank you very much, Pallavi. That's a very exhaustive, comprehensive response to my question. Um, and I agree with you that there is much more in the book than what we have both asked and shared. Uh, I'll probably take my final take on this discussion and interview by perhaps referring to one sentence which I really thought kind of uh, explains to the reader, uh, where you say in the introduction, the conceptual objectives of this book are twofold. One is to show how Pamuk reshapes the way his fiction is understood through the work his fiction does. It investigates not only the loss of, me the loss of meaning, but the repetition of meaning until meaning itself becomes duplicitous, unquote. This is from page 17. I think you really capture uh, one of the important charms of reading Pamuk and also as a literary scholar, how you look at it. Maybe as a parting sentence or maybe in a way of rounding up or wrapping up this very engaging conversation for me. And thank you so much for your time and engagement. I would like to ask you now to think of what is it that you think this book offers uh, for a scholar of, let's say, literary studies who is interested in looking at the representations of the city in literature very briefly. So since you wrote the book, where do you think the book could be placed most appropriately, in your opinion, as the author of the book? Well, certainly for, for scholars looking at modernism, postmodernism, post-structuralism, um, and for, you know, modernist and postmodernist representations of the city, it would be a useful addition. Um, I think also for, you know, those who are studying cultural theory, museum studies also, uh, the architecture of, of cities in general, it would also be uh, quite exciting. I feel, I think I have uh, not tried to write in a, I, I mean, while I have obviously written a scholarly work, it is entirely accessible. I think also fans of, you know, of Pamuk himself would also love, love the book because uh, it would enable them to, you know, think about his works in a very, um, very engaging fashion. Um, it would be, uh, you know, it would add a certain uh, value to their their you know way of uh, perceiving his novels as as not just as not merely fiction, as not merely fiction about a city, a country, but also um, works that you know talk of very important contributions that you know the city and the museum uh, have made to the realm of literature. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, it would be really interesting for me to see which kinds of scholars from which disciplines can use this work in different ways. Because uh, given my broad range 
of interest. Um, I would also like to see perhaps how writing scholars use it, um, because I think I have, uh, I have, not I think, I know that I have used several techniques of writing, um, which would also enable scholars of critical writing studies to, you know, see how to structure their own papers and books. And given my, my long, you know, publishing experience, particularly with this works publisher also, with, who was my first employer, Routledge, way, way back in 2007, I think this is where I learned the ropes. Um, Routledge taught me everything I needed to know about, you know, copy editing, about, you know, thinking about scholarly publishing in general, about distribution systems. So to be published by Routledge has been uh, coming full circle for me. Um, and also add on to that, uh, adding to that, uh, my work with trade publishers like Pan Macmillan, Penguin, uh, with NUS Press in Singapore. Um, I think it's also added to a certain um, a certain knowledge of how to commercialize this work as well. And also in, in uh, my Frankfurt Fellowship for Book Publishing uh, five years ago, that has been, uh, you know, sort of the crowning glory and, you know, the publishing industry for me. Um, and then moving forward into my academic career. Um, so, yeah. Thank you, Pallavi. I think you captured all of it. Um, all I would say is that, yes, as a teacher of writing, I would definitely recommend it also for students, scholars, and teachers of writing studies. But also, as much as Pamuk is self-reflexive in his own writing about the city, and you talk also about how his own writing is, in a way, very much alluding to his self-reflexive takes on the city, Pambuk's Istanbul, The Self and the City, where Pallavi Narayan also offers us an insight into her own self as a writer, as a publisher, as somebody who traverses multiple worlds. So I think it was true to that, that you have tried to bring in all those parts of your persona into this. So you were all listening to a conversation I had with Pamuk's Istanbul, The Self and the City's author, Pallavi Narayan. Thank you so much, Pallavi, and I look forward to discussing with you more on this book and others to come. Wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sanjay. This was really great for me as well.